Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have an amazing entrepreneur that has been at it for a little bit over 10 years and it's amazing, you know, remarkable story going from one country to another. So I think that it's going to be really interesting to hear his story and how the journey has been. So I guess without further ado, Gustav Agarson, welcome to the show today. Hi, thanks a lot, Andrew. Uh, great to be here. So originally born right outside of Stockholm. In a, in a town that had about 5,000 people. So how was life growing up there? I think it was great. I mean, small town is perfect when, when you're a young kid. So I really enjoyed it. Probably up until age around uh, 14, 15. Then 5,000 people. It's a really small place. So I, I'm, from that moment, I, I look forward to, to, to move from that city to, uh, uh, to Stockholm. And you ended up in Stockholm at about 15 years old. So, I mean, was that like a, a big culture shock to all of a sudden see much more than 5,000 people like going around the street and seeing different faces rather than the same face over and over again? Yeah, probably a bit like that. I mean, I've obviously been to, to, to Stockholm before I moved. But yeah, it was a bit of a, a, bit of a shock. But it was also, I think, uh, yeah, very exciting uh, for me to, uh, uh, to do that. And uh, yeah, I had support from my parents making that move, which I, which I very much appreciate. So telecommunications. So tell us how you end up, you know, in the telecommunications world, because obviously that was, you know, your first gig, you know, really, you know, in, in, in the professional life, what you started doing right off the get-go. So, so how did you land in telecommunications? Yes, after my, after my studies, when I started to, to look for jobs, there was this, um, uh, this Swedish uh, Swedish telco, uh, the Swedish mobile operator called Tele2, who had an um, uh, operation throughout um, uh, around almost 20 countries in, in, in Europe. And, and, and that company had a very kind of entrepreneurial mindset. They had grown fast and they had these uh, two-year programs uh, that you could apply for where we had an opportunity to, we got a mentor and then we had an opportunity to work in a, in a number of, of different countries during those two years and we were involved in in, in ex exciting projects uh, so for me that was a, an excellent opportunity to to see different countries but also to work with everything from product uh, uh, marketing technology and learn a lot so when I joined 
when I joined that Tele2, my, my mentor at the time said, focus your two years on learning as much as possible um, and have fun uh, rather than kind of uh, produce work. And, and, and I think that was, that was a great opportunity. I, I learned a lot and a really exciting time for me. And why do you think that Swedish people travel so much? I mean, it's insane. I mean, obviously with this telco, you did travel quite a bit. But it's like uh, Swedish people. You guys are born with like a luggage under your arm. What's going on? Uh, yeah, good question. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, Sweden is a small, small country, and uh, it's uh, cold and uh, and dark a big part of the year. And as a result, I think we uh, we quite excited when we see things going on in other part of the world. And uh, I think that's that's why why Swedes like to travel, and uh, especially during during the uh, during the winter. And that's also been the case for me. I mean, I've always been excited about what's going on outside outside Sweden, both in my professional life, but also I mean, from when I was was a kid. Travel, go on vacation was uh, uh, something that me and and others around me really wanted to do. I mean, that, that that's that's probably what motivated too, like uh, being interested in what what's happening outside of Stockholm uh, and Sweden, you know, in 2009, for example, you started to see what was happening in East uh, Kenya. And, uh, you know, at that point, you start to incubate, you know, the idea of doing something, something on your own. So tell us about what happened and what were the sequence of events there? Yeah, so so around, around that time, I was, again, I mean, I, I wanted to do something, something else, and I was really excited about what was going on, not only outside Sweden, but outside Europe. And she said in Kenya at the time, uh, the mobile operator Safaricom had invented M-Pesa, which was basically a platform that enabled people that didn't have bank accounts to send and receive money. So what they managed to prove was that with mobile operator infrastructure, with mobile technology, you can actually create financial products for people that, that haven't had access to it. Uh, before and I thought that was really inspiring. And at the same time, I heard about a, a Swedish um, uh, investor called Shinovik that they were actually backing very young businesses uh, that were focused on consumer finance in in emerging markets. So I got a meeting with them and discussed the idea of doing something in in Africa where we continued on on the same line as as Safaricom. Uh, where we would explore how we could use mobile operators to do more within within financial services. And we discussed the idea of doing something around insurance. And that basically led to a, a commitment from Chinevi, where they said that if you move to an African country and you prove through uh, local research and pilot projects that there's an opportunity here, we will back you uh, financially. So that's what I did. I, I moved to Ghana in 2010, mid-2010, and basically set up a business that uh, then later on became became Bima. Um, so that, that's how we started. So what ended up being the business model of Bima for the people that are listening to get it? So the, the whole purpose of Bima is, is that we want to provide insurance and, and health services to people in emerging markets that haven't had access to these services before. So... Um, we started in Ghana, but the situation is very similar also in other African countries and in in the 
you know, emerging part of, of, of Asia as well. People don't have access to, to insurance. People don't have that safety net. And uh, that is also not something that the, the, the government can, can, can provide. So what we wanted to achieve with Bima was to um, find a, by leveraging technology, we wanted to find a cost-effective way to provide uh, insurance, life and health insurance to people. And um, the, the whole idea from, from the beginning was that if we leverage technology the right way, we can bring prices down to, say, $50 cents or up to a couple of dollars per month, which is affordable for the mass market. So that was the whole idea. And, and then uh, I, I knew before I moved to Ghana that there was a, there was a need for these, for these products in a country like Ghana and also in, in, in other uh, markets in Africa. I mean, you can see that from the from the stats, right? You can see that the insurance penetration is very low. But what I didn't know when I arrived in Ghana was, uh, do people actually want to buy these products, even if we create them and make them affordable? Do people want to allocate their, the money that they have and pay for something like insurance? That I didn't know. And I also didn't know anything about exactly how what the business model would, would look like. But one of the things that I realized when I arrived in Ghana through the, f- the first phase of the of the research was that there is actually a demand. When we created like example products of, uh, uh, that that we were planning to launch, and we discussed those with potential customers and said that if we would offer you this life or health insurance and it cost you a dollar a month, would you then buy it? And the answer was yes. So I realized that this could actually work because there's clearly a demand here. The reason why people don't have access to insurance in Ghana is not because they're not prepared to pay for it or they don't want it or they don't see the need for it. It's because no one has offered it to them in a convenient way at an affordable price. So then the question was, how do we develop a business model that works? And what has evolved since then is, is a model where we are leveraging uh, mobile operators or providers of mobile, mobile wallets um, in the sense that that's how we collect premiums from customers. So customers can subscribe through the phone and then they, they can pay for the insurance through their phone. So that's core to the, uh, to, to the business model, that that's all digitalized, right? subscriptions and payment and communication with customers. That's digitalized. But um, what we also realized that, that when, when people are buying something like insurance for the first time, uh, you need to provide them education around what insurance is and how it works. So our business model from the beginning has been a blend of digital processes with the human touch. And what we mean by that human touch is that we, even if customers can subscribe themselves on the phone, we actually have full-time uh, employed sales agents that are operating out in the field in marketplaces, meeting potential customers and pitch the product to them. And we have also set up call centers uh, in Ghana and the, in the other markets where we, where we operate. So um, across Africa and uh, and in Asia, we have around uh, 2,000 uh, salespeople in call centers that are wow. reaching out to customers and tell them about the product, answer their questions, and help them with the, with the subscription. 
and that's and were, what our, our, our business model happened, uh, how it works. And it was probably a, it, it, it had to be wild to all of a sudden go from a place like Europe where, you know, there you are familiar with business, with how are the interactions, you know, it's kind of like the same mentality if you're in the UK or if you're in Germany or whatever you are, you know, across Europe. But, you know, here you go to, to, to Ghana, you know, which is not as developed as, a, as what you were used to seeing. I mean, I'm sure that that was quite a, a, a culture shock for you too, no? So, so how was that like? How was, how was like conducting business in Ghana and developing something from the ground up in a place that you were completely unfamiliar? Yeah, I think it was, uh, it was challenging and also uh, very exciting. I'd never been to Africa. Uh, so this was the first time uh, I'd seen an African country. Uh, so obviously that was a big a big change, but uh, Ghana is also a great place. I mean, there if you look at other countries in West Africa, uh, like Nigeria, Ivory Coast, uh, etc., th these countries can be much more challenging. I think Ghana has been politically stable for a long time. It's English speaking, and it's um, it's a safe it's a safe place. Uh, you can walk out in the streets also in, in evenings, etc. So from that perspective, it was overall, I think for me, a very positive uh, experience. Then, of course, building something from, from, from start was, was, was tricky. And we were inventing a new business model that also required approvals from, uh, from regulators. And getting those approvals was, took some time and required many, many meetings and a lot of uh, convincing and explanation. But, um, yeah. but overall, very exciting times. Yeah, so, so I guess in this case, I mean, obviously, you know, the, it seems that you guys had hit a, hit a nerve in the market. Uh, and I'm sure that there, you know, where, when you were building this up and, and you started to receive that validation, then, you know, it was all about building the team. So how did you go about building the team in a new area for you, in a new country? I mean, what were some of the uh, measures or, or 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 things that you took into consideration to make sure that you were able to surround yourself by the right people. Yeah, I think for, for me, I, I I was lucky in the beginning with a couple of couple of recruitments um, that I did uh, that has been uh, you know absolute critical for uh, for Bima. So our uh, our deputy uh, CEO uh, is called Matilda. She she joined me. Um, uh, already beginning of, of 2011, um, so I, I made some some key hires in the beginning. But looking back at that time, um, I can also say that I didn't spend enough uh, time on building team in, in the beginning. So I, I I made some of the mistakes that I think many entrepreneurs make. You you try to do everything yourself in the beginning, and Building a team and recruiting take that 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 takes time, and when you get new people on board, you actually have to invest time in making them understand the company, which actually slows you down. So it can be tricky in the beginning to spend the time and the money that is required to build a team, even if you know that it's going to be necessary to succeed long term. So I think for me, it was a bit of luck in the in the beginning. Um, uh, that I um, got some good people on on, on board, 
but we could also move, I think, faster by uh, recruiting uh, additional people uh, early on. And as we're thinking about recruiting people and building things up in business model, I mean, obviously, this requires capital. So how much capital have you guys raised uh, to date? We raised around $130 million uh, to date. Got it. And in terms of capital deployment, I mean, obviously, people is, is a big one. In your case, you know, it seems that you guys accelerated a bit too fast when it came to building the team. So what did you learn from, from, from perhaps, you know, expanding so fast, going to different countries so fast? Uh, what were some of the lessons there for you guys to, to be learning? Yeah, you're right. I mean, we, when we had proven that the business model was working in, in Ghana, we started to expand geographically. And initially in other markets in, in, in Africa and then into to, to South and Southeast Asia and also to Latin America. And in, for example, 2000 and 2014, we launched seven, seven new countries within that year. And we recruited more than more than a thousand people in that year. And again, looking back at that time, I think we we moved a bit too fast. We we didn't do enough research before we entered a new market. Now we also look at potentially entering new markets, but we're gonna go through a very different process that happens in terms of. Uh, really making sure that we understand whether the circumstances in that market is right for our business model. And that wasn't always the case in the past. So, for example, Latin America, we entered countries that um, didn't have the right circumstances for us to, to succeed, and we didn't enter into the right commercial agreements with, uh, with partners. So we had to exit those markets have been no longer have any presence in, in Latin America as a, as a region. So the, the learning there is that for me is that I mean, you can move fast and, and I think it's important that you take decisions, decisions fast and, 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 and move forward as a business. But before making significant investments, it's also worth doing, doing the required research. And we haven't always done that. Yeah. No, no, I hear you. And, you know, as part of, you know, I'm sure that there's a lot of people right now that are listening that, you know, maybe are at that point where they're transitioning from being at a series A financing cycle where you have the product market fit and you're ready to, to you know, you have the revenues, you know, they're transitioning from that series A to a series B, which is, you know, more about historicals, more about the wheel already turning on its own by adding more capital. And where you go from early stage to growth stage, which is really the expansion stage. I guess, you know, for those people that are listening that perhaps are transitioning from early stage to growth stage, you know, and really thinking about expansion. I mean, what what three pieces of advice would you give them to really consider as as, as you are thinking about expansion? Yeah, so I think it started with, and this is something that I've also been been guilty of and uh, I, I think I've seen quite a few other people making the same mistake you start when when you fundraise right you you put forward that very aggressive uh, growth plan to your potential investors and and by doing that you kind of commit to that plan so then when the when when, when you close the round you set those expectations and then you you might end up in a situation where you actually think it's better for the company to slow down a bit, but because of the commitments 
you make you you continue to move full speed ahead, even if you you know that 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 might be a risky thing to do. Um, so my first recommendation would be to to be quite careful before you put forward that 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 forecast and, and set those expectations with uh, uh, with with your new shareholders, for example, ahead of a, of a series of a series B. The second thing would be that if you try to scale something and you realize that the fundamentals here are not in place, it's better to pause and fix it before before you scale up. And again, sometimes that's easier said than done because you, you've set expectations among others and, and yourselves that you're going to achieve something according to a certain timeline. But it, it, it can often make sense to, to take a pause there. Then the last thing would probably be that, especially when you, in our case, we're operating in a, in a, uh, across several regulated industries. And when you have the combination of you know, new technology being uh, required to launch uh, something, as well as regulatory approval, uh, yeah, you need to have some, some buffers in your, uh, in your timelines in order to, uh, uh, to be successful. So that's another learning. So I guess for the people that are listening here, Gustav, you know, to really get an idea of, of how big is Bima today, I mean, anything that you can share in terms of maybe number of employees or anything else that, that you feel comfortable disclosing? Yeah, so we have around um, um, 2,500 uh, employees. We, we operate in, in nine, nine markets across Africa and, and, and Asia, and then we have three, three global offices, uh, one in London, one in Bangalore, and one in, in Singapore. And um, we have sold our, our insurance um, and health services today to um, a bit more than 35 million people. And if we look right now uh, on a monthly basis, how many, how many customers that actually have uh, paid for their, uh, their, their monthly premium for their insurance uh, product, that's around a bit more than 5 million. And um, then we are also, we have expanded our product portfolio. So we offer insurance, but also other health services like telemedicine. Uh, and we are delivering around 1 million uh, consultations uh, over phone uh, per year. So Gustav, as we're thinking here about numbers and we're thinking about realizing, you know, the vision for BIMA, imagine you go to sleep tonight and uh, you wake up in a world five years later, you wake up in a world where the vision of BIMA is fully realized. What does that world look like? That in, in that world, we are successfully operating in the nine markets where we are today, plus an additional two to three countries in Africa and Asia. In all of these markets, we are a well-known and very much trusted brand that... Uh, families believe are there for them to protect them and, and their future. And um, I would like us to, to offer products that span across insurance, uh, telemedicine, but also other related health services. And I want us to be specialized in, in, in some areas where we make sure that if you have, for example, diabetes and you're a BIMA customer, that you have uh, access to, to, to the tools that you need to manage to manage your health. Very nice. And, you know, one of the things as you're talking about 
uh, telehealth and, you know, definitely one of the things that comes to mind is the COVID experience, right? I mean, I'm sure that this whole COVID uh, situation has been pretty wild uh, to experience, you know, being, you know, the operator behind Bima. So, so how has it been the COVID experience for you guys? Yeah, it's been, last year was an extremely challenging uh, year. We offer telemedicine service and therefore people think that te uh, telemedicine has benefited from uh, the COVID situation uh, and that that's been a positive thing for for, for, for BIMA. And, and that is that is correct. The demand for telemedicine services uh, has increased. So that's positive. But also for us, and then this comes back to what I said earlier, that our business model is not pure digital, right? It's also that human touch. And our growth is dependent on uh, more than 2,000 people that are selling our products out in the field and in call center. And obviously, when, when markets go into lockdown, it's impossible to operate with a field agent sales force. So that was one challenge that we faced. But also before COVID, all of our sales staff in call centers, yeah, they came in and operated from, from a call center. And um, when there were restrictions from government around how many people that could be in the office or whether people could go to the, to the office at all, we had to, to, uh, to arrange for, for those people to, to do sales from home. And um, in countries like uh, Pakistan, Ghana, or, or, or Bangladesh, uh, not everyone has the right equipment to to just from one day to another start to 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 make their sales call from home instead of the, of the office. So that was the transition that we that we had to that we had to go through. Um, so during Q2 last year, uh, we had to 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 make that that transition and get basically everyone within Bima to to operate in an effective way from from home and. Um, then what we saw second half of the year was that the, the situation started to vary a lot between countries. Some countries opened up again. Uh, other countries have stayed in, in, in lockdown. Um, and, and that's the situation also, also today, even if beginning of this year, everything seems to be going across markets in the right direction. Now that the situation is going on right now in, in India, we see, potential knock-on effects in some of the neighboring countries and the, the, the near-term future for the development of COVID in countries like uh, uh, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka and Pakistan, where we have operations, is actually quite, quite uncertain. So that, that challenge is very, much, is very much there. And even if we, we see vaccines being rolled out, yeah, I think we, we all agree that that's going to take time. So we're going to continue to have challenges also for the rest of this year uh, due to COVID. And just one, one, one thing that is very interesting here is, I mean, you are a very well-traveled individual. I mean, you, you've been all over the world, literally. I guess when you are able to have that level of exposure to to different cultures to different you know people to different mindsets to different approaches i think that you've been able to learn a lot as well on how to deal with people too so i guess you know how do you think you know having that type of worldview has transformed yourself as a leader as well 
That's a good. It's a good question, and it's a hard one to to uh, uh, to answer. But I think traveling and meeting people and listening to what people have to say. I mean, you you learn a lot as a leader, but also more broadly as as, as an individual. I've also seen that leadership styles can work in in some countries, and they're less effective in 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 other countries. Uh, and one of my colleagues said, for example, now when I'm based here in, in, in Southeast Asia, he said that here in the region, you have to be respected as a person before you can be respected as a, as a manager. And that might not be the case in other countries where you, the new boss can walk into an office and start to decide how things should be done. And that works, right? And in other cultures, that doesn't work. You have to spend time with people and earn their, their respect before you can start having conversations around what, what should be done and what should not be done. And this, these are things that I've uh, yeah, learned along the way and still learning. So that's, that's what probably that, that learning curve will, will probably never, never stop. And, and that's something that I've also realized just over the past year that it's uh, when it comes to uh, developing into uh, into a strong leader that that will take uh, a lot of a lot of time and I'm I'm very very far from from done with that that's that's for sure. So so imagine now you know there's one one of the questions that I typically ask the guests that come on the show and that is imagine I put you into a time machine and I'm able to bring you back in time, obviously with all the experiences, all the lessons learned and and everything about this journey with Beam. But I'm able to tra to transport you back to 2009 to have a conversation with your younger self. So here you are. You are at a point in time where you are keen to understand what else you could do that is something of your own. And you have the chance to sit down with that younger self at that moment in time. What would you tell to your younger self, to that younger Gustav, about launching a business? What would be that one piece of advice about launching a business? Only one. And why would you give that one to your younger self before launching a company? And 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 why, based on what you know now, Gustav? Well, it's a, it's a tricky one. If it's only one thing, uh, it would probably be to from start be more focused on understanding the the consumers and the actual user of the product. Looking Got back, it. I could have spent more time doing that throughout the, uh, the evolution of Bima. I love that. You know, I think that uh, the consumers are everything. So without them, you know, there's nothing. So I, I really love that, Gustav. So I guess for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Well, they can uh, connect with either me or, or Beam over, over LinkedIn. And uh, uh, it's if people are just interested in connecting and, and share exciting ideas or if they're interested in working um, with, uh, with Bima, whatever it is, I'm, I'm, I'm open. So please connect. Amazing. Well, Gustav, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thank you very much. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, Share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember, 
that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.